Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, episode 8. Dirty Money, Here's How to Clean It, a novel by Ed Adams. For the record. In Edgware Road, Fredrickson had found the American's office quickly and approached the person seated at a solitary desk. It was Mr Manners with his southern drawl. Thank you for seeing me here, began Manners. Let's keep this to the point, responded Fredrickson. I've got the recording, Manners began, and there is an important part for you. I've edited the important piece into a short extract, which is on this memory stick. He flipped the stick into a small player on the desk in front of him. There was a part of the conversation between Jake and Collins. They were talking about car prices and the McLaren supercar. Then Collins started to talk about the code and sure enough gave information which seemed to confuse Jake. Then the conversation moved on to a few other points, finishing with the section about the arrangements for the photography session. At the end, the American handed the stick to Fredrickson. Here you are, he said. I think you can understand why. I kept the original version as a type of insurance. You will do whatever you need to with this recording. Yes, all of it is here, but I'll be keeping the original and a paper transcript in a safe place. Fredrickson nodded. The two men professionally understood one another. Each needed some leverage to be sure that there could be some trust and security between one another. There may be some sudden endings, but I doubt that you and I will ever meet again, said Fredrickson. They nodded to one another, and Fredrickson left the office with the stick. A few moments later, the American picked up the CD player and walked out of the office. He didn't look back. He would never need to see this office again. Its use for 48 hours had been all he needed. Big C and Claire were also working on the meaning of the recording. They had heard the whole scene involving the Arabs and had a pretty clear idea that it was a threat and that Collins was coerced into something before his death. They also had the code number and suspected it to be a telephone number. OK, said Jake, as Claire and Bigsy made their way to the door. Outside, they hailed another taxi for the short ride to Regent Street. In Cannes, France, the phone rang in Amelia's hotel room. She paused. No one knew she was here. She answered it cautiously. Hello, she said, giving away as little information as possible. Miss Brophy, I trust you are refreshed from the conference, came a clear voice. We have some interesting opportunities to discuss. I believe you saw the paperwork earlier. It would be advantageous for us to both meet at, let's say, 4pm at the Martinez. I'm in room 731. Please do come straight to the room. This is quite important. The phone clicked off. Amelia Brophy scribbled down the room number 731. She knew the Martinez, which was another famous hotel along the Croisette. She looked at her watch. It was already 3.25 in the afternoon. A ten-minute walk to the other hotel. Was this a trap? Lots of people knew she was in Cannes from the perspective of her alibi. She had been careful to separate her undercover role from the obvious story she had been creating. She was sure that the call from the clandestine side of what she had been doing, and that it was from someone very close. It had to be related to the people who had given her the envelope with the unexpected contents. She ran some scenarios in her head. Meet, fight, flight. She decided that she should visit, but would take some defensive precautions. Still logged onto her computer, she loaded her email software, 
selected scheduled mail, created a short message and pressed enter. The email would not leave her system immediately. It was held in a pending file until 17.30. If she returned, she would cancel the message. If there was a problem, the message would go to an interesting area in eBay where it would form part of an auction. The auction was somewhat specialised and should not attract unwanted attention. This process had become a way to build insurance for some rather unconventional associates to operate together anonymously. Placing advertisements for an obscure category of heavy equipment, they were able to post contracts about people they wanted removed. It allowed bidders to use the site anonymously to publish contracts and then to bid to complete them. The only use was for professional assassin contractors who considered themselves in danger. Respondents were also in the same line of business and operating on a strict bounty basis. She left the computer switched on, but emptied everything else from the room into a small holdall. She placed the holdall in a cupboard in the room, which now looked unoccupied, except for the small laptop connected to the internet and a main supply. Primed, she thought, as she closed the door on her way out of the room. An apple a day. The main reason that Bigsy and Claire had decided to go to the Apple store in Regent Street was for anonymity. It was close by, had plenty of computers connected to the internet, and a very fast-changing series of customers. By selecting a random computer, after some wait to be able to obtain one from the many students reading and sending emails, and then by using Google, they could quickly find out whether Biggs's idea was correct. Once more, they typed in the internet web search for Blue Flame MPH 7539 passcode sequence. They soon found a few Blue Flame websites and even several where the code number was also used. Bigsy flicked through the sites. One looked promising with Blue Flame across the top and then a series of pictures of various engineering elements. Bigsy clicked a few of the photographs and many words on the page, but nothing happened. This doesn't lead anywhere, he said. It's a dead end. There has to be more, he continued. He flicked back to a couple of other sites. There has to be more than this list of gas fitters. Claire looked at the screen. Wait, she said. Blue flame. A very fast car. Miles per hour. She pointed to a Wikipedia entry. Bigsy nodded. Yes, good idea. There's a tie to Darren's interesting cars. Let's try it, said Claire, and we should also write it down. She reached into her jacket and found a flyer handed to her in the street. Bigsy was looking through the entry. Here we are, he said. Blue flame, a rocket car. Check this. It's the speed of the car. It is written to look like the start of a phone number. 622.407. Let's add the 7539 to the end. Claire wrote the phone number on her paper and Bigsy clicked another search term. The screen flicked to another web page, very different from the first one. It was a picture of an apartment block in Switzerland with an address. It looked like an advertisement for rental, but also included a caption which said Suite 009 available for rental. Reference blue slash FLA slash ME. Claire and Bigsy reread this. It was a reasonably unambiguous instruction to visit a specific town and a particular room. No way, said Claire. This is too crazy. Bigsy nodded and continued to click on the keyboard. He was running a search for the city and apartments to validate that this was a real address. Sure enough, a Google map blinked back at them and then a satellite image of the street close to the lake. 
He found there were 89 rooms in the development, including nine suites. Claire continued to take notes as they flicked through the various websites. Bigsy looked to see if there was a way to find out about the specific suite referred to on the web page. There was nothing. For another 45 minutes, Bigsy ran other searches in an attempt to find a way to make useful contact with the apartments without a visit. There was nothing. They would need to visit in person to follow the instructions. Yay, said Claire, but this is starting to get expensive. Canned heat. The frontage of the Martinez was more understated than some of the other grand hotels along the front in Cannes. An original Art Deco confection, it had been substantially modernised over the last years, which meant it was well equipped with the latest high-speed internet connections and extensive access to most of the world's cable TV. Amelia walked across the sleek lobby, requesting a room and stipulating the sixth floor. As it was the last day of the conference, she knew there would be likely spare capacity, and she was rewarded with a room immediately. She looked around for the elevators. She was used to looking as if she knew where she was going in hotels, while simultaneously scoping them out. She noted the offices behind the reception area, and that the reception was in a kind of cul-de-sac area of the hotel. In a shootout, the area would be difficult to manage unless using the back exit by the side of the administration offices. The elevator was also small inside, and as she pressed the button for the seventh floor, she noticed that it didn't light, although the elevator did start to move. Security, she thought. Someone going to floor 7 isn't going to be noticed by travellers to other floors. She wondered if this was accidental, but recognised it as a typical security trick used by several agencies, as well as the Russian Mafia. It also gave a signal to those in the know about a way the floor may not be quite what it seemed. She glanced around the elevator for a camera, but there was nothing visible. Given the unlit button, she assumed that the elevator was wired, but that it would be exceptionally discreet. Then to the floor. She exited the elevator and looked immediately to the rather grandiose and sweeping stairway. She looked over the edge, making quick mental calculations about angles of view. She then walked down a floor to check the positions of exits and routes. She sought her sixth floor room and entered it using the swipe key. A good room, looking better than the standard room she had at the Carlton. A view of the sparkling sea. She walked to the bed, not turned down. She pulled down the bed covers and pushed the courtesy cushions into the bed, making a form which looked like a sleeping body. She added the courtesy bathrobe to the ensemble and found the pillows, no doubt to be used by the turn-down services, in a wardrobe. Now she drew the curtains so the room was dark. Going back to the door, she looked towards the bed. From the door, it gave every impression of a sleeping person facing away from the door on the far side of the bed. These preparations completed, she flipped the room card into her jacket pocket and made her way back to the stairway. Now it was around ten minutes to four o'clock. She ascended to the seventh floor. Givorsi Spa said the signage. The floor had almost no room markings. It was well thought out planned for the most exclusive part of the hotel. If you didn't know where it was, you were going, it was hard to find anything. Amelia followed the signs towards the spa, and along the way were several doors on the right-hand side. Each led to an entrance lobby. She looked at the first. Then she spotted small door numbers discreetly placed by the bell push. She needed to go further to the end of her corridor. 
At around five minutes to four, she was outside the requisite room, which had a public space lobby almost the size of the room she had left at the Carlton. Amelia looked back along the corridor. Then she walked to the door, which had a small spy hole. It was blanked from inside. There was another adjacent door, which looked like service cupboards. If anything bad was going to happen, this was a tight spot to handle, and her best space management techniques didn't give her a good feeling. She thought back to the PC with its primed death contract in the other hotel. Then she rang the bell of room 731. Leaving the Apple store and feeling triumphant, Bigsy and Claire used another black cab to get back to Bigsy's place. They had found the essential information they needed and had done it in an almost untraceable way. Someone would need to visit the Apple store and get the security footage, even to be able to spot them. Bigsy has also deleted the history from the browsing that they had just completed. It would not fool an expert, but it would at least slow someone down. They had also moved three times to different computers during their investigation, which also covered their tracks along with the substantial other traffic of random shoppers, students and tourists into the store. Back at Bigsy's, they told Jake what they had discovered and the linkage across to Zurich. So Jake, what are we going to do next? asked Claire. And if we continue to look into this ourselves, then it is dangerous and expensive. I agree, replied Jake. We're on to something, that's for sure. I think I'm in danger anyway, and I doubt the police will be able to stop that, short of me hiding somewhere. At the moment, this is a good place because no one expects me to be here, and we arrived here in a random way. I want us to try to link with the American, who has told me that I need to contact him. In any case, I know I'm asking you to, to do a lot of this, but how about we make contact with the American tomorrow and then decide what to do next? How much danger is there to meet the American? queried Bigsy. By your own account, he looked like a military-grade person. We need to think this through, replied Jake. Claire nodded. Jake explained the arrangements for the next day. He was supposed to meet the American in Yo Sushi, a busy lunchtime restaurant chain just over the River Thames from Westminster. This location was also very close to Waterloo train station. They started to assemble a plan. Bigsy would meet the American. Jake would be in the vicinity in case it was essential, but they would keep him away from the American if practical. Claire would control events by cell phone. They also needed an extra phone because they could not use Jake's. Claire must buy a cheap pay-as-you-go phone from a local store. It would be suitably anonymous and meant that the three of them could communicate during the meeting. Jake knew the restaurant's location well, and also that there was plenty of good viewpoints nearby, all within a short walk of the famous landmark of the London Eye. They contrived to plan. Privately, each realised they were dealing with professionals and just hoped that their amateur efforts would be so far outside the way a professional would think that they would be able to make it work. In Chelsea Police Station, Detective Inspector Truman was still engrossed in the case. Although his other workload was heavy, this case had created some interesting developments. He received information via a regular bulletin that a serious crime suspect with international connections had recently been tracked down via the new US National Security Administration. This person of interest had shown up first in Riyadh and then in London. They were now staying close to the area of the gallery and the murder. Whilst this was probably coincidence, the appearance of a serious player on his patch was an interesting development. However, the timings of his arrival did not match the murder, and Truman viewed it as a one 
to watch rather than for direct inquiry. Truman was, however, interested in what had happened to the Jake Lambers, the person who had appeared to give the tickets to Lucien Deschamps. After trying to contact Jake at home, at his office and by phone, they were drawing a blank. Jake's employers had admitted that Jake was something of a free spirit, but it was interesting that he didn't seem to have any visibility at all at the moment. Truman had some theories. Maybe Jake was loose somewhere. Perhaps Jake was hiding for a reason yet to be determined, or perhaps Jake was in trouble, or worse. Truman had discussed this with Green, and they were examining places where Jake could have gone, including the pursuit of other stories. Green had obtained his cellular phone number from Street, and they had contacted Vodafone to check for recent calls. There had been none since shortly after the murder of Lucien, and this was very much at odds with Jake's usually frequent usage pattern. So although it was not a very strong lead, Truman and Green were trying to find Jake Lambers. (laughs) 